Hi, I'm Paul Haverschrud, host of The Cost of Living. It's a show about money and how it shapes our lives. In big ways, like why inflation could get worse if we all make more money. Here's the hard truth in all of this. Workers are going to have to eat that real wage loss. And small ways, like what's the fastest way to order fast food? That first Big Mac that comes out of the kitchen is going to the drive-thru. Check out The Cost of Living. We're on CBC Listen or wherever you get podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Did you know that one of the most sought-after violinists in the world, like the one that every orchestra wants, is a Canadian and a Canadian from Brandon, Manitoba, population 50,000? James Ennis has played with some of the best orchestras in the world and some of the most famous concert halls. James has won Grammys. He's a member of the Order of Canada. And he and I have never had a chance to talk before. So he'll tell you why it makes complete sense for a great classical musician to come from Brandon, why he thinks we pay too much attention to the lives of people who make great music, how exactly you travel with one of the most expensive violins in the world on your back, and why a great violinist should try and avoid basketball. That's coming up. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. So yeah, as I mentioned, you're going to hear from one of the greatest classical musicians in Canadian history. Let's hear what he sounds like. Some of Brandon, Manitoba's own James Ennis performing some of Sergei Prokofiev's second violin sonata. As I mentioned, James is one of the most sought-after violinists in the world right now. I realize I'm talking about him like he's in his 80s or something like that. James is only in his early 40s, but he has spent his life with the violin. James grew up in Brandon, Manitoba, started out playing violin when he was four. By the time he was 13, he was on stage performing with the Montreal Symphony. Since then, his recordings have won Grammys. His shows with orchestras all over the world sell out just because he's there. These Instagram reels of him playing like um, Stravinsky and Tchaikovsky have like millions of these young classical musicians, you know, commenting and talking about how influential he is on them. He's about as close as you can come to being a star in the violin world. And yeah, James and I have never spoken before, though I remember going to an orchestra show because he was playing at it. And when we found out he was performing with the Toronto Symphony Orchestra, we, we reached out to him and he, and he came in. He actually brought his violin with him, not to play, but because it's so valuable, you don't want to leave it unattended in the green room. I'll say this, if classical music is not your thing, I get it. I like classical music, but I don't sit around at my house listening to Brahms or anything like that. So if you're not into classical music, what you're really going to hear is an artist at the top of his game, how a small community can produce a master musician, the complicated feelings that come up when you're 12 and you're better at something than all of your friends, and how much you have to practice to be that great. Here's my conversation with James Ennis. How are you? Hey, good. Great to be here. How's it feel? Did you, Canadian shows mean anything to you? Yeah, well, you know, Canada's—it's home. It'll always be home, and it's—it's it's great to be back up here. And yeah, it's a really special week. It's—it's it's nice to have uh, kind of a significant amount of time. You know, sometimes the nature of my job 
it's like I'll come in for these, you know, strategic strikes, like 48 hours or something. Really? And, uh, and to be here for a week working with the Toronto Symphony, you know, these people are kind of like my musical family. I, I realized that coming up in January, it'll be 30 years since the first time I played with the Toronto Symphony. So that's, uh, yeah, it's significant to be here. Really nice. You started when you, you played with the Toronto Symphony and you were two for the first time. Oh, uh, right? sure. Yeah, something like that. Something yeah. like that. <laughs> <laughs> you grew up in Brandon, Manitoba. Uh, no disrespect to Brandon Manitoba, but when I read you say, and I was doing research for this interview, and I read you say something like, there's no better place to grow up to end up doing what I ended up doing with my life. I didn't, I don't mean any disrespect, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't quite know. Because typically you would expect something like that yeah, from Montreal yeah, or, or yeah. Toronto or something like that. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I think that what I'm going to say about Brandon is kind of, in a way, a uniquely Canadian type of thing. You know, the, the nature of uh, the size of our country and the way that the population is dispersed, you find these uh, real hotbeds of a certain kind of activity uh, in what might be seen as unlikely places. And Brandon, Manitoba, you know, Brandon University has had this kind of legendary music school for um, decades. And um, it's a very special place for a lot of reasons, but I think that in a way, the 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 way that the school was set up was if you want to go somewhere to really immerse yourself in your work, to to feel like you have a real connection with uh, with a smaller school, with a smaller faculty, uh, Brandon was set up to to be this type of a place. And this remarkable man named Lauren Watson went around the country hiring the best. Music around the world, really hiring the best music professors he could back in, I guess, the '60s, and then in the early '70s, sort of the second round of these hires, uh, they hired a trumpet professor, and that was my dad, and that's how um, he ended up there. And then, you know, they they started a family, and we grew up there, and it was a great place to to grow up. I mean, my violin teacher, Francis Chaplin, had. Uh, just a huge and lasting influence on the classical music scene across the country. I mean, there are members of virtually every orchestra uh, studied with him, and uh, he was my father's kind of closest friend. So that was that was one of those things that just you look back on and, and kind of marvel at the 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 serendipity of a situation like that. Um, and I really mean it that I, I, there's nowhere else where I think I could have received that kind of incredible attention from so many wonderful musicians. I mean, the, the faculty of music there have remained uh, incredibly important people in my in my life, and yeah, I, I think it's I think it's something really worth celebrating that uh, that in Canada you can you can thrive in these kind of unusual areas. Um, you know, you don't have to go to Toronto. You don't have to go to Montreal. I want to play a clip that I know was also part of the inspiration. Take a listen to this. Well, Mr. Perlman, you take the high part, and I'll take the low part, all right? Okay. Now, I should warn you that the low part is the fun part. Oh. Do, do you still want to play with I me? I don't mind. I'd love to. Oh, okay. Love to. Okay. Do you want to tell us what we're listening to right now? <laughs> you know, it took me a second. That that first voice. I thought, Is that Tom Waits? I, I don't think I know this person. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's so funny. Yeah, Sesame Street. That is Sesame Street with the great violinist Itzhak Perlman. Yeah, you know, I 
I remember as a little kid seeing, it may have been this very episode, uh, seeing at Sock Perlman on Sesame Street and thinking, oh, that guy's just the coolest. I want to do that. Um, and, I, and I'd sort of wondered over the years if maybe that was how I made that connection between what a violin sounded like and what a violin actually was. You know, because my, my parents, their record collection, I was always hearing instruments, but somehow or another at a really young age, I did make the connection between what instruments made what sounds. And, uh, and yeah, I decided that I really wanted a violin. And uh, I mean, most people, understandably, when they know that my father was a musician, my, my mother was a dancer at a ballet school town and uh, they think oh well your, your parents probably gave you an instrument and told you to play it and it really wasn't like that at all I, I kind of had this this uh, intense desire to to play a violin and they were like well okay I'll give it a try see how it goes were you good at it like naturally right away you know I th- I think so or at least in a in a way I mean the the funny thing about playing the violin is is I mean, you really sound terrible yeah. for quite a while. I mean, the God, listen, I, I tried, <laughs> yeah. and I couldn't get past the... I still, every now and then, will pick it up yeah. and go... I play, I should say, playing fiddle, but every now and then I'll pick it up and I'll go, I'll give it, yeah, come on, I'll give it a shot. Yeah. And I, I can't get past the first 10 minutes of sounding like that. You know, it's it's too bad because I, I think that people, they often talk about this uh, with music and with instruments in general, but I think with violin in particular, they say, well, you know, you got to start young if you haven't started young. And and I think that that's discouraging sometimes because people have this idea like, well, if, you know, maybe I'm 12 or 14 and, you know, it's too late for me now. You know, I don't think that there's anything to that except the fact that you, when you're really little, you just don't mind how bad you sound. <laughs> it's, you know, it's not like somehow there's something magical that happens that you lose when you're older. I, I think that it's just older students get so discouraged because it takes a while to, to sound decent. But, I mean, all that being said, I think that I I did have sort of a natural ability for it. And I think that I had also an in- incredible amount of encouragement because my my parents as teachers and my father as a music teacher in particular did recognize that I had an ability and you know, gave me such great you know encouragement. And kids always want to feel like um, like they're doing well at something. And, and I had just such great support around me. And I, I know that that was really, really important. What happens when you're 12 or 11 and you start to realize that you might be better than other kids your age at this instrument, that you might have a, a bit of a thing? You know, it was, um, for me, it, the realization of kind of where I was within a small community happened pretty early on because I was involved with um, the Suzuki method. It's this yeah. sort of, yeah well-known method for for learning instruments and so there were was my sort of group of peers and i recognized from early on that i was able to advance more quickly than them and you know my, my parents they they framed it in a way of um of it you know you need to be sort of accountable to your own abilities and to be grateful for... Accountable to your own abilities? Well, you know, I think that when you're lucky enough to... I think everybody's good at something. I really strongly believe that. And um, when you're lucky enough to 
recognize what it is, to find out what it is that you're good at, and when it's something that you actually really like to do, um, you need to recognize how lucky you are for that. And um, I think that's what I mean about being sort of responsible to your talent, you know, because there are so many people that, you know, I would, I've worked really hard. Like, yeah. I, I definitely am not going to shortchange myself in terms of the amount of uh, effort that I've put into it. But I know that there are a lot of people that have worked just as hard and have wanted it just as much. And I think that was something that was kind of hammered home to me uh, at an early age is that if you love it and you recognize that you're good at it, it's kind of a responsibility to develop that talent as much as you can because not everyone who wants it as much as you is going to have that much ability mm. to work. And so, yeah, it's kind of a weird thing to talk about, but I think, and, you know, now that I'm raising children myself, it's something I, I try to instill in them as well, you know, it's sort of a responsibility to your own gifts and talents. Does the normal childhood nerves exist when you're playing at that level like when you you play with the M Montreal Symphony when you were what like 13 yeah um I'd won this competition and part of the prize I mean really the whole reason I'd entered it was the if you won the the first prize you got to play with the orchestra and uh of course it's such a, a legendary orchestra and uh I was out in Montreal and the, the night before I was with these we were staying with these uh, family friends and all they had some boys around uh, my age and we were all playing basketball out in there oh, yeah you can see where this oh, is going no, right no. And I sort of sort of jammed a finger a little bit I mean it wasn't like terrible or anything but I just really I, like you hurt your finger oh yeah yeah uh, the middle finger on my left hand I was like I can't believe that this has happened and I, I wouldn't tell anybody <laughs> you know I was like no I'm not I'm not going to say a word to anyone so in a weird way it was it was a good kind of distraction to have in a way it, I think that um, that could have been a situation where I, I would have just been sort of paralyzed by the 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 moment you know by the, the sort of the the enormity of the of the moment and the opportunity but instead it was like okay is my finger feeling all right okay well if I have, I have to you know do this to sort of negotiate certain things and it it really kept my uh Kept my eye on the ball, so to speak. <laughs> James, I can't imagine. I can't imagine that, like, all right, I'm 13 years old and I got to play with one of the best symphonies in North America tomorrow because I won a contest and I hurt my finger the night before. Uh, like, how, what goes through your mind at that moment? You know, it's it's just, it's one of those things. <laughs> you, you just feel so incredibly dumb. And, uh, and it wasn't, it was not, it wasn't like I heard it badly, but I heard it enough. Enough. But then it's interesting how I think that a lot of performers would, would agree that, that when you get into the heat of the moment, it's, it's amazing what adrenaline will do, you know, how you won't necessarily be as aware of certain pains or discomforts. You know, it's, it's like how when you're performing, I mean, I've been playing for like 35 years on stage and I don't remember sneezing during a performance ever. You know, it's like these weird little mechanisms that take over. You know, sometimes you'll have like a nasty cold, but 
you, you feel awful right up until the moment that you get on stage, and then you feel okay again, and then you feel awful once you get off stage. So, you know, things like that, I think that that's sort of common, but I think I'm also lucky that uh, that my adrenaline tends to sort of uh, override these these feelings of, you know, injury or sickness or whatever. I'm glad you mentioned that because I, I was going to talk to you a little bit about the idea of like presence when you're performing these pieces of music. And sometimes the pieces of music that you've performed, you know, hundreds and hundreds of mm-hmm. times you're getting up and doing in front of an orchestra. And I, I want to get to that in a second. But I, I just kind of want to talk about process a little bit because I was talking to a couple of friends of mine who were violinists and they were very excited that you were you were coming in. And, um, and uh, I guess... I have some questions that they were curious about, and I have some questions that, that, that I was curious about. The first thing that I was curious about is a little bit of, of process, if you don't mind. So let's say you're taking on like a big, well-known piece, like a Beethoven sonata mm-hmm. or something like that. What's, what's your first step there? Are you, are you reading the score? Are you going to find other violinists who you really admire and listening to, to their recordings? Are you focusing on technique? Let's make sure it gets underneath my fingers. Mm. Are you we're thinking about what's the emotion, what's the story behind the piece and make sure you're imbuing it? At this point, the kind of core repertoire, yeah. I've known this stuff for so long. Like There, there aren't there aren't so many pieces within the kind of inner circle of the repertoire that that I haven't already spent a lot of time kind right. of figuring out. So right. in general, with with pieces of music that aren't new, you know, if if it's new, then you have to start from, of course, from zero. Uh, if it's a piece that is sort of part of the repertoire, maybe it's been played, it's been maybe recorded... Um, I think there's certainly no harm in, in you know, listening to see what what your colleagues or what great violinists of the past have done with it. But but ultimately, you you sort of have to forget all that, um, or or it becomes part of the story. But you you have to come at it from from your own angle. And and yeah, I think that for me, the process generally is kind of scratch through it to sort of get a sense of the proportions, a sense of the structure, because I'm a big believer in in sort of musical architecture, so to speak. And that's in everything from, you know, you could be talking about a 90-minute symphony or you can be talking about like a two-and-a-half-minute pop song. I mean, there is a form mm-hmm. and a proportion to it that has to work in a particular way. Um, I think the idea is that by the time you perf- you're ready to perform a piece, you have a total understanding of what that story is. But that's that's really the way I've been been thinking about it for a while now. And it, it, making the metaphor to, I mean, it is storytelling, right? And if you don't, if you don't really remember how that joke ends, like don't start telling the yeah, joke. Right, 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 all, right, right. We've all had that experience. So make like, sure oh, you wait. really know it. Make sure you really know the f- structure and the form yeah, and, like, and your embody the piece. Right, like what it is you're trying to say. And Are you doing biographical details? Are you going like, okay, this is where Mozart was at this part of his life. This is when Beethoven wrote this. He was he was deaf at this point or he was in love with this. The, mm-hmm. the, he wasn't writing him back or he was writing, you know. Yeah. Like, he was, yeah, this is the original, not getting texted back and being left on <laughs> left on read. Um, is the princess ghosting me? <laughs> yeah, um, I think that... I love how there's like eight classical music people who get this joke, by the way. But... Um, uh, are you are you in, are you worrying yourself with any of them? Just just because you brought it up, <laughs> I think I will say that it sometimes is a frustration of mine that people sometimes try to explain great art 
through situations that the artist was dealing with as if it somehow is an explanation of their genius. Uh, okay. You know, they'll uh, listen to, I, I heard this amazing interview with the great conductor, Lauren Mazel, uh, before a performance of Tchaikovsky's Sixth Symphony. You know, this, this piece that is very tragic and, and ends very tragically and, and the Interviewer. It was one of those interviews where the, the interviewer was not really asking questions, but was just trying to get Lauren Mazel to verify his already <laughs> <laughs> firm thoughts on the subject. I wouldn't know and, anything about that, James. I wouldn't. <laughs> and, and, uh, the, Lauren Mazel was just. It was so funny. I mean, he's just like dripping with disdain because this guy was basically saying, well, you know, we can hear Tchaikovsky's sorrow and we can hear his upcoming suicide. And we, you know, we, we can understand this music through the references of his life. And Mazel was having none of it. And he said, listen, Tchaikovsky was a great genius. He was a genius on a level that we can't understand and we can't explain it. He could write sad music when he was happy, and he could write happy music when he was sad, because he was really, really great, and he was just better than us. And you know what? Sometimes there might be parallels, but it's, it cheapens it to, you know, of course people are writing out of experience, but they're writing out of skill, and yeah. out of you know the the genius of um, of artists to portray these inner emotions that may or may not reflect what's going on in their life. You know, like, people love to take a look at like the last music of Mozart's you know final year and say, oh well, you know, you can you can you can hear that he senses the end is coming. It's like no, that's not true. <laughs> you know, sorry, it was 1791 and he got sick and he died and that's yeah. awful. But it wasn't like somehow he saw this coming like a year early. He wrote music full of this this incredible poignancy because he was just really, really a great genius. And if that makes people uncomfortable, it's like, well, sorry, you know, I, I'm not Mozart. You're not Mozart. Nobody is. He he was very, very special. So, all this to say that I take I like to take a look at the biographical elements and see them as part of the story. But I also like to I just find myself so impressed by these artistic minds that you know it's my greatest joy to to try to get inside these these creations that and you know to breathe life in them into them and tell this story the way that I think it comes across and that's the great thing about live performances you, you know the same way like I was saying you you tell a joke and you know how that joke goes you might have told this joke 50 times but yeah. if you've got a different group of friends you tell it a little differently. You say it a little differently if you're saying it to one person, if you're saying it to three people, if you're saying it to 50 people. Um, all of this becomes part of the equation. It doesn't mean that you change the ending or that somehow it becomes a different story, but communicating that message and, and reading, reading a room and understanding sort of the collective atmosphere in the concert hall, that's... It's the most incredible sensation. And of course, that was the, the hardest thing to lose, I think, when the halls were all closed during, during COVID. I mean, not, not being able to, to sort of get that, that feedback that is, is so difficult to explain. I love that book because I think I, as a, as a classical music 
fan, but someone who does not play that music, who comes from traditional music and mm. comes from folk music, which of course is so imbued in story and lived experience yeah. and all that. You know, you're hearing farmers sing about, you know, droughts that happened in the 1700s. And of course, I'm thinking, my God, they were going through a drought in the 1700s. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is beautiful. I never thought about that before. I love that, that we can, we can also just accept that Rachmaninoff was a really great composer. We can also accept that Mahler was a complicated, great composer. Yeah. And these things. I mean, that's a, what a, a great insight into the way you think about music. I'm really grateful to you for that. I really do appreciate that. I mean, I am someone who, as you, if you, if you listen to the show more than 30 seconds, loves to get bogged down in the biographical details of the musicians that I love. And it was just nice to hear that perspective, to have it challenged a little bit by the great James Ennis. You're hearing him play the first movement to Handel's Violin Sonata in D Major from his latest album with the pianist Andrew Armstrong. Coming up on the show, James will tell you a great story. I love this story. Uh, he was playing basketball. He was having the game of his life. Like, everything he was shooting was going in. No one could touch him. And then he realized what was actually happening. James Ennis, after this. One of the best shows of the year, according to Apple, Amazon and Time, is back for another round. This season, we're diving deep into some of McCartney's most beloved songs. Yesterday, Band on the Run, Hey Jude. And McCartney's favourite song in his entire catalogue, Here, There and Everywhere. Listen to Season 2 of McCartney, A Life in Lyrics on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. You're in the middle of my conversation with one of the greatest musicians ever to come out of Canada. Though if you're not in the classical world, you might not be as familiar with him. James Ennis, the Grammy-winning artist from Brandon, Manitoba. In fact, the piece you're hearing right now, Aaron J. Kernis's Violin Concerto, a piece written in for James, performed by James, won him his latest Grammy. Yeah, he's one of the greatest violinists of our time. And I have friends in classical and, and in bluegrass music who talk to me a lot about their practice regimen and the practice regimen of the great musicians. Like, I have a buddy of mine who's one of the greatest mandolin players in the world, and he told me one time that he has to practice three hours a day just to not get worse. You know, three hours a day just to maintain how good he is now, not to get any better. So I was interested in how much time James spends practicing. And I think it's always interesting to hear, no matter what the discipline, how much work you have to put in. So I asked him, and I got to say, his answer kind of surprised me. 
I don't know. I like to be very efficient, and I, I feel mm. like I've always been. It's always been a big part of my life is trying to be as efficient as possible with everything because there's a lot of things I like to do. You know, I, I there are some people, and I kind of love this. Like some of my colleagues, the only thing they really like to do is play the violin. Like they yeah. just love it. They yeah. love it so much. And I'm like, that's great. I'm really glad you love it. Like I love it too, but I also really like to like go to the beach and hang out with my kids and yeah. do this and the other. And and um, so yeah, I, I'm not I'm not one to to generally speaking just spend lots and lots of time if I don't kind of need to because go there are eight hours a day with the metronome. Yeah, and, right. Because yeah, yeah. then because there are the periods where that's exactly what I'm doing and that's exactly what I have to do. You know, it's just hour after hour after hour after hour. I mean, there will be you know. So when people are like, "How much are you playing?" It's like, well, I don't know. You know, if if I can take a day or two away from the violin, I will. Like, I definitely will do that. Uh, whereas some of my friends and colleagues, like, they they, they can't. Like, it, they just get too kind of antsy about it. And, just don't uh, play basketball on those days. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I, I love basketball. That's, that's a problem. It's like I, I still love basketball. And I remember this was this is going back about 10 years now. But still, I was, I was playing with the orchestra that's basically like my hometown orchestra now, the Sarasota Orchestra in Florida. And this wonderful group of people down there, just great orchestra, great people. And, and there's a, a whole bunch of guys there that are right around my same age. And we were... It was during a set of performances I was playing a concerto with them, and we went to, like, oh, should we play a little basketball? And I knew, I was like, oh, I shouldn't play basketball. But I was like, well, I don't know. Maybe let's just play a little bit of basketball. And so we're playing, you know, like three on three or something. <laughs> and I was just, like, on fire. I just, I was unstoppable. I felt like LeBron James. I mean, it was incredible until the moment that it hit me that I'm like, no one is coming within four feet of me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, no one was going to be the one to bust my fingers in the middle of that. I wonder why I'm playing yeah, so Yeah, well. I was like, darn it. You know, I thought I was really, I thought I was really making a breakthrough with my basketball game. Um, I, we asked our colleague uh, uh, Robert Rowett from um, Classical Music Producer at CBC for for help researching you for this interview, and he was really, really, um, really helpful. So, in gratitude to Robert, we asked, <laughs> and he's the biggest classical music nerd I know. <laughs> I asked if he had a question for you. So, I don't even know what this is. James, I look forward to each new album you release, especially the violin concertos. You've recorded the Barber and Korngold concertos, the Mendelssohn, Bartok, and Tchaikovsky concertos, Britton, Elgar, Shostakovich, Dvorak, but I'm holding my breath for two in particular, Sibelius and Brahms. I want to know, what are you waiting for, and when will the time be right for those concertos? Well, hello, Robert. (laughs) Um, Well... Okay, Sibelius. I didn't expect him to put you on the spot this much. I thought it was going to be like, oh, tell me a little bit about your bow arm or, you know. No, I, I like that. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, those are kind of of the core pieces. Those are the ones that are, I, I think, kind of noticeable holes in my discography. And, and it's there's nothing on purpose about it. It's I learned kind of early on in the, the recording business, the, the best uh, the best advice I got was, take the best opportunities as they come to make the projects that are most special. And uh, 
so I think sometimes what can happen is is people will have an idea. They're like, well, I need to record this piece. And well, how are you going to do that? Well, I don't know. Just, you know, find an orchestra, find a conductor. And you, you hear all these kind of nightmare stories of people getting thrown together for collaborations where there's no chemistry, there's no rehearsal, there's no, there's really no reason for it to happen. And, you know, that's not a great way of making art. Um, so I've always enjoyed when when the pieces come together for it to be like okay now is the perfect time and the perfect circum set of circumstances to record the elgar concerto or the right. tchaikovsky concerto or whatever and and that just kind of didn't happen for a long time with these pieces and then in recent years it's been just incredibly frustrating as sibelius concerto um i'm very happy to say that i did record it i just did that in august Scoop. um that's a scoop right there. <laughs> um, this was a project that was planned for uh, June of 2020. Didn't happen for obvious reasons. Yeah, right, Rescheduled right. to August of 2020. Didn't happen for also obvious reasons. The summer of 21 didn't happen again. Mm -hmm. Summer of 22 and then was replaced by a different bit of repertoire of Nielsen that we recorded and that was subsequently released. And so finally it happened. And then the other one with the Brahms, this is also a project that has fallen through uh three separate times with three separate <laughs> organizations. So uh, it will be coming soon, I'm sure. Robert. Um, come on, Robert. Give me a break, man. <laughs> <laughs> I got to play some basketball at some point in my yeah. life, for God's sake. Right. You know the other thing he told me, though? He told me that he's coming across so many young violinists in Canada who are, he can tell in the way they stand, in the way they approach the instrument, that they're they're emulating James Ennis. Well, that's that's awfully nice. You know, it's, it's kind of an amazing thing how, you know, it goes back to this this idea we've been touching upon this whole time of of storytelling you know and so much of of all performance art is is kind of handing down these these traditions of of uh, of yeah telling stories and you become and you recognize that you become part of this this long line of people that uh, that recognize the the value of this this art and want to share it with other people and you know as I've as I have gotten older, you know, teaching has become a, a bigger and bigger part of my life, and uh, and I recognize now, you know, what it, what it was for for my father that that drew him into that world, and why that was was so special to him, you know, to to be able to, you know, you spend so much time thinking about this stuff, and you come up with with concepts and ideas that you really believe in, and to have the um, the platform, I suppose, to uh, to be able to share that is is really meaningful. Um, we're going to go out on, on you playing um, the piece. You're playing with the TSO, right? You're here to play the Barber. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, we're going to go on to Samuel Barber's Violin Concerto. It's a rare opportunity to get to talk to someone like you, and I'm glad we're having such like a fun chat, but it's, it's rare to have someone of your level talk to me about this music. I wonder if you could set this up a little bit. Let, let, let us know what, what we should be listening for. Well, you know, Barber was a, a really extraordinary American composer who at heart was a very lyrical songwriter, I think is how I would put it. Um, living and working during a period of time where the so-called classical music world was was often quite, um, I don't know, quite divided. And, and he was not necessarily on the popular side of this in that he wrote music, the, the easiest way of putting it is he wrote music that people liked to listen to at a point where there was a lot of music being written that was about, you know, dissonance and and sort of uh, 
tragedy, a lot of atonal and, music, a lot yeah, of really a lot challenging of experimental, music. yeah, very difficult harmonic music that can be wonderful and really exciting. But like I say, Barber was ultimately a very kind of total, tonal, beautiful songwriter. For people that are not familiar with his music, like people, a lot of people say, well, I don't think I know any of Samuel Barber's music, but the, you probably do. I mean, his most famous piece is the Adagio for Strings that is featured so prominently in so much of our popular culture. You know, if you've ever seen Platoon... I think now, looking back, we did not fight the enemy. We fought ourselves. And the enemy was in us. It's like, well, yeah, I mean, that that movie kind of depends on the use of the adagio for strings. And, and the violin concerto, the first two movements of his concerto are really in that vein. I mean, the, the most prominent feature of the of the music, I think, is just how how beautiful and lyrical it is. And it starts, the violin starts right off. You know, there's no, no orchestral introduction. It's just you sort of are immediately like surrounded by this warm blanket of, of beauty. Uh, as popular as the piece was in America in particular, the piece didn't really travel much and even to this day is a lot less known in, say, continental Europe. Mm. And I have just kind of through odd circumstance, I've ended up playing the piece in a number of like European capitals where they just didn't know it oh. at all. And it's when you'll hear it now you know coming up you can imagine the the pleasure of introducing a piece like this in all of its warmth and beauty to audiences that don't know it you know it's a really a really special thing man i got to tell you uh, i was i was looking forward to having you in all week and uh, i'm i'm so glad you came in to talk oh, a little thank bit about you. this i've Thanks enjoyed this so much yeah i had a great time james annis the grammy winning order of canada violinist um, you're going to hear him right now performing the first movement from Samuel Barber's Violin Concerto. James Ennis, the Grammy-winning Order of Canada violinist. James is in Toronto this week. He'll be performing that Barber Concerto you're listening to right now at Roy Thompson Hall in Toronto tomorrow night. Now, if you're listening to this and you're saying, because I used to do this when I lived in St. John's, yelling at your radio and yelling at the CBC and going, hey, I don't live in Toronto. How am I supposed to? Well, James will be back in Canada in January. He'll be performing in Ottawa. He'll be back in Toronto again next May. But if I know James Ennis, he'll be coming to a concert hall near you soon. Uh, that is it for the show this week. Q is produced by Ben Edwards, Vanessa Greco, Lise Hossein, Vanessa Nigro, Corinna Jowan, Gloria Amateo, 
Matt Murphy, and Catherine Stockhausen. Our digital team is Amelia Ekbal, Shirley Grossman-Gray, and Vivian Rashad. Our podcast producer is Caitlin Swan, and our director is Mitch Pollack. Our engineer is Sam Hashemi. Our senior producer is Beza Seifa. And McKeegan is our executive producer, and my name is Tom Power. If you want to subscribe to our podcast, Q with Tom Power, on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify, wherever you get them. And if you want to get in touch with me and drop me a line, God knows I love hearing from you. I'm at Tom Joe Power on Instagram. My DMs are open. And if you want to, <laughs> is that what the kids say? My my DMs are open. I got a thumbs up, but that's what the kids say. Okay. And if you want to send me an email, q at cbc.ca is the best way to do that. All right. See you soon. Later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.